But our gospel reading for this morning comes from uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people take a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Um, well, it's good, good to be here this morning. Thank you again, Leo and Cami. Appreciate Leo. I, I didn't actually realize that Second Kings passage had as many names. You're doing that extemporaneously. I just must say I'm really impressed. Um, but this morning we're in the fifth Sunday, as Pastor Jeff has kind of mentioned, this season of light called Epiphany. Um, of seven, there's two more, and then we get into the season of preparation uh, before Easter. Um, and as we're in this season of light and revelation, I've, I've kind of said sort of the meditation or the centering question here is, who is Jesus? And what does he reveal about God and about all of us? The scripture passages that we've read this morning seek to answer this question. For the most part this morning, I'm going to spend some time with the King's passage, give you a little bit of the story behind the story, behind the story, maybe, a little bit of that, in part because I feel like so often the wonderful thing about the Old Testament is that its story parallels my own story, parallels all of our stories. It will help set us up for the gospel when Christ, the very wisdom in the Word of God, is incarnated and becomes a living, breathing person of Jesus, and finally, with Paul in Corinthians, where he tells us that Christ makes himself available to us so that same Word and wisdom now lives within us and transforms us. In the Second Kings passage that Leo read, there's this wonderful moment that happens when Josiah, who's king of Judah at the time, and Hilkiah the priest rediscover the law that God had given to all of the Israelites. This spoken word that Israel had received resonates so much with the story of salvation. Kind of be. You should be able to maybe, I'm not sure if I'm echoing in some of these mics here. Um, but they rediscover the law, and it resonates so much, the words that God had spoke at Sinai with the rest of the salvation story. When God creates, how are all things brought into existence? 
right? God speaks the word, he speaks them, and when you get into the wisdom literature, especially later on, it will talk about that the words of God are indeed the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is so orchestrated, all things, it's put it into this beautiful harmony, order, and communion, and humanity is the culmination of all these things. And Barb, as we're talking about in the uh, Sunday school I was a part of this morning, after that, Adam and Eve sin, and how do they sin? But by disobeying the word that God had spoken to them. And then God speaks another word, and he establishes a covenant with Abraham to bless all of creation. And as he's fulfilling that, and in the midst of redeeming the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land, he then speaks the word of his eternal wisdom at Sinai with them, giving them the law. You see, just as God's word had established the sun and the moon and their chart across the heavens so that there's day and night, so also God speaks this word to the Israelites at Sinai. And while it doesn't chart the heavens, it does chart those spiritual rhythms of worship, of confession, of adoration, of hope, and of truth. These rhythms that would allow the Israelites to live in that harmony and that order that God is. That law is carved into stone. And part of that is because the God who has spoken those words doesn't change, who is faithful, who ultimately abides and will permanently be present with his people. The problem maybe with those words that have been written in stone, with the covenant that was carved at Sinai, is that even words in stone can be forgotten. And even permanent laws can still be ignored. Just having that word among them may not be enough. No matter how great the law that God gave was, much like the alarm clock on my phone, it's only as good as I don't press that snooze button. Somehow we're made aware of all this in this Second Kings passage. I think to tell King Josiah's rediscovery of the law here and what it means, you have to skip back to one other moment in Israel's history. So you all know that there was this time, of course, where you have the three kings of the United Monarchy. Anybody know any of them? Any of the three kings? They're all together. You put your hand down. Saul, sound familiar? David, who's David's son? Solomon. You have these three kings, and it's what's so incredible about this moment in Israel is you have all the way back there at Sinai Covenant. The law is given. They go through. They get to the promised land. Then you have Saul, this faithful king named David, and his son Solomon. And here the word of the Lord that's also the wisdom of the Lord, that's in the Torah there, that's been given to Israel, almost seems to be personified in Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. The word and the law of God flourishes in Israel during that time. Shortly after Solomon, right, he has his son Rehoboam, who takes over the over the throne in Judah, and then there's this rebellion, Jeroboam, which means the people contends, becomes the first ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel would have 19 kings. If I were to ask you to name one wicked king and a wicked queen, which one do you think that I was referring to? You put your hand down. Oh, nice. Jezebel and who is the king? Ahab. Right, you go about 60 years down the line since the kingdom of Judah split. Solomon, the one who was the wisest man in the world, had reigned. And all of a sudden, we get to this wicked king and wicked queen. 
it seems that Israel has kind of gone off the rails there. They've gone astray. And Ahab, what's so interesting about this king, we actually have the most extant archaeological evidence about Ahab during this time period. Surprise, surprise, he was one of the most politically, economically influential kings, and that didn't go hand in hand with following in the ways of the Lord. Not that we would ever know that that happens in our world today. And while he's amassing that power and influence, this is the wonderful thing about Israel and Judah. You can see that the focus of their worship changes. Pagan gods come back into it. Ahab extends his influence into Judah, and the law that had flourished under Solomon vanishes, and the temple falls into this period of neglect. And the question you have to ask here is, we're looking at at Ahab, at Jezebel, and what's happened to the kingdom of Israel and to Judah is what more could God have done? God covenanted with them. God delivered them from slavery. God gave them the law to be this permanent presence of God among them. This is the moment also when we get this wonderful continuation, God, God's word again yet being faithful. We have this famous figure, kind of the first figure that we see in the prophet who, who was the prophet during Ahab's reign? Elijah. And now the law that had been given and carved into stone gets into this living dialogue with the people of Israel as the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. A number of things transpire. Eventually a military commander named, named Jehu executes vengeance on all of Ahab's family in Israel. He also kills the king of Judah, who is Ahab's grandson. Ahab's daughter, who's also in Judah at that point, her name's Adaliah. She's the king's mother. She seizes the throne because she's afraid that Jehu or some of his representatives are going to come kill her. She kills all the rival claimants, and she rules for six years. But she missed one. The king had a one-year-old son named Joash, who's rescued by his aunt, and he's raised in the temple for six years. Under this queen's reign of terror, eventually the people conduct a secret ceremony. Then Adaliah is deposed, and Joash becomes this boy king at seven years old. And the law that had all but disappeared, all but seemed to have been extinguished in Judah, is once again revived. And after 20 years as king, King Joash sets about restoring the temple of the Lord that had fallen into disuse. And I think this is the really extraordinary thing about this moment in Judah's history. That Israel and Judah had both all but forsaken the Lord. That they had been enticed to go astray into the world that's concerned with political alliances, with amassing wealth, with national security at the cost of following God, but that the word of the Lord doesn't come up empty here and his presence doesn't fade from among them. The wisdom of God that's found in the law speaks a better word than the world in this moment over who Judah is ultimately going to be. And all the powers of the world that seem to converge to thwart God's plan in Judah crumble before a seven-year-old boy. I think this is one of those moments that it's just so critical to remember 
Pastor Jeff has been talking these last couple of weeks about how Paul in 1 Corinthians has been speaking about the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, which is foolishness to this world. The temptation is to try to fight fire with fire, right? If the world hits us, we hit back harder. The ends justify the means. There's no, hold bar, no holds barred. You just use the wisdom and the logic that's presented to you. But here, what I love in this story, what I love about the people of Israel, but gets such a wonderful illustration, moment of expression, is that God's power is expressed and made perfect in the foolishness and the weakness of a boy who becomes king of Judah. Ahab and the empires that seem to threaten and bear down on Judah at that time are all broken apart, and God alone remains. And I'm convinced that if you would change the world, or make a difference, at least in light of this story. If you want to really impact history, you do what the priests do under the reign of Adelaide, and you raise a child up in the knowledge and the way of the Lord. Because all the powers of sin, of evil, and the devil won't be able to stop what's coming. If you fast forward 150 years, we get now to this moment that we're at in 2 Kings, and again Judah has fallen into unfaithfulness. Things have actually gotten much more dire than they were even back in Ahab's day because now you have a whole string of bad kings. So many, in fact, that the northern kingdom of Israel, which had been chosen to be a part of God's people, has totally disappeared. And you think maybe the ending of the story is ultimately going to be written by our sin. Maybe the word of the Lord can be extinguished. Maybe if there are enough times, sin gets the upper hand in this. There's a king who's named Manasseh who reigns in Judah for the longest of any king five years. Do you want to know what he was known for? That famous line in, in Kings always gets repeated. What did he do in the sight of the Lord? Did evil. Did evil. He sinned in the sight of the Lord, right? He was known for his wickedness. And Judah seems hot on the heels of following Israel into oblivion. Right? This is just the same pattern, going to play itself out again and again. Manasseh dies, his son Amon rules, and then is killed shortly after, not unlike Joash's father. And wouldn't you know it, there's another boy named Josiah, who's eight years old. And at eight years old, he becomes a boy king. The parallels here with Joash are somewhat stunning. The sin in the darkness that had seemingly gotten control and all but extinguished, once again Judah, is turned back and cast off. The word of the Lord that had spoken yet again and been proved is true shows that loving kindness that's written and etched into the law of who God's is, his character. And when Josiah has reigned for nearly 20 years, he desires to renovate and restore the temple. That's the background of the story that Leo read for us. It's then that the book of the law is found. In fact, I think that this is the moment where many scholars, if you kind of look at this period in the history of Judah, that recovery of the book of the law is significant because there's kind of a writing renaissance that happens at this moment in Israel and Judah's history. That some of what we would take and know as the Old Testament was kind of being compiled and put together, that there were many copies that were made and sent out to all the peoples 
of the land at that point. And what's so incredible, I think, about this moment is as you see this repetition, these ways that sin continues to try to thwart God's plan, in this moment, when we look at Josiah here, who recovers the book of the law, and has it compiled and sent out to all the people, that what sin had thought to do in creating these obstacles and obstructions to God's mission only served the word of the Lord in the end, to make it come back stronger than it had been before. What we see in Josiah and Hilkiah is this near kingdom-wide repentance and turning towards God. Josiah breaks down all the altars and idols, and he reinstitutes a Sabbath that had never happened or been as faithful up to that point. What I love about this passage, what I love about this moment, is that in Joash and in Josiah, God's word and wisdom in the law, the promises that he makes to Abraham and to David are given this fresh expression as these seemingly unstoppable powers of sin and death are defeated by children. There is still a fundamental problem here in this story. You heard all the words that Leo read that are spoken. Because nevertheless, Israel and Judah both oscillated between these periods of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And ultimately, Judah is going to experience the consequences of those unfaithfulness. So how ultimately does this law that God gives the people of Israel, this divine and eternal wisdom, become not just something that's near us or among us that can be pushed aside or forgotten, but something that's truly in us, transforming us, to give us and allow us to have that constant communion with God? Fortunately, that's the gift of Jesus here in our gospel passage, because he has become the word, the law of God incarnate, uniting God in creation, bringing into one unity what had seemed impossible. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What an incredible word he speaks there, maybe especially for me and how I had grown up. Jesus here shows that there's this continuity, there's a reason, there's a purpose that we still have the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. Whereas in the Sinai covenant, we have the words that God speaks spoken and recorded to the people of Israel, whereas in the prophets, we have the word of a God entering into this living dialogue with his people. Now in Jesus, the law and the wisdom of God has become actual flesh. We witness in Jesus the perfect expression of all that the law was ever intended to be and to do. Jesus is everything that God had desired to speak and to say to Israel and to the world and what he's been preparing them for this whole time. Jesus is the eternal word of God spoken from beginning to end. And you can see the words that were written in stone there at Sinai all etched into Jesus' life, right? He's the one who goes to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He speaks to the people that God had chosen to bring his blessing to the rest of the world. He goes to the temple in Jerusalem for all the major feasts, as we see throughout his ministry. We find him in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He has these regular times of prayer, and he teaches all of his disciples how to pray. He reads the Torah. He quotes the prophets. He references the kingdom of God that's anticipated in the scriptures. And on his last night there, we find him faithfully eating the Passover 
with all of his disciples. He is a faithful son of Israel. But the wonderful thing about Christ is that those words that are carved into stone and into dirt, they're filled with the Spirit of God in a way that they were always meant to be. The problem with the law is that so quickly it can fall into kind of a sin mitigation or management technique. Sort of like a bizarre diet that like eliminates soda and bread. Definitely don't eat these things, they're going to kill you, but you can still like eat Hershey's bars and brownies. You know, or like this, you're like, wait, how does this actually make sense? But as Jesus lives in this selfless humility and surrender to God all throughout, from the moment that he allows himself to go and be baptized by John to the very last moment when he's on the cross there, he's able to perfectly fulfill all the law in time. In Jesus, the law doesn't try to avoid or mitigate or manage sin. It completely casts it out and cleanses it. Right? When Jesus comes into contact with those who, according to the law, have their wholeness compromised, so through Christ they are healed according to the law. When Jesus encounters those who, according to the law, are less than honest, they, according to the law, confess and become truthful. When Jesus encounters the faithless, they become believers. When Jesus encounters the hungry, he fills them with the goodness and the righteousness of God. This is what the law was always intended to do. A purity, a holiness, a faithfulness so sure that all sin is simply banished from its presence. And the wonderful news this morning that Jesus gives us is that we're invited into that very same call. What's fascinating about Jesus' words there is he doesn't say that it's the law that's the salt and light of the earth. He doesn't even say that it's himself, even though he is the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So that the world might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In our Corinthians passage, Paul confirms all of this. It's the wisdom of God, it's the word of God that we need for our salvation. And for Paul, the wisdom of God is what? That Christ and him crucified. If you were to try to sum up in some sort of perfect, simple, but also complete and total image what the wisdom and word of God was from ages, we see it in Jesus, who though being in very form God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a human and became obedient to death even death on a cross. There's this almost scandalizing humility in the Son of God and his obedience to the Lord to die for our sins. And the wonderful thing that Paul brings into focus here is he shows us how Christ already gives us that humility that we need to be able to confess that we have all turned astray to be able to surrender our whole life to God, to be able to admit our absolute dependency on God for salvation. The cross of Christ is this incredible reminder that we can't change ourselves by our own strength or by our own power. Again, what we were saying this morning in the Sunday school. This is the very heart of the law. But if we ask for the humility, if we ask to be able to surrender and turn towards the cross, it casts out our self-righteousness, our pride, our vanity, our doubt, our despair. 
The extraordinary thing about the cross is it leaves just enough room for God to do his work in us. And in that moment, it also becomes this image of glory, of splendor, because it shows us God's unconditional love for us exactly at that moment when we admit that we need it so much. It frees us and it opens us to the Spirit of Christ who is able to change hearts. When you look to Jesus' disciples, Paul, the apostles, those who follow after him, you see the light, you see the wisdom, you see the salt of the earth displayed as they are themselves conformed to the same likeness of Jesus. Here in this passage, here with Paul, it doesn't demand that we do heroic feats or wonders. Rather, if you look from what happens with Josiah in the kingdom of Judah, if you look what Jesus is telling here to um, the people he's preaching in this Sermon on the Mount, if you look to Paul, it's a willingness to be confronted with who we have been so that we can receive this grace of God. And if in that humility we allow God to take us through sin and suffering, then, like our Lord, God's power, his glory, and his wisdom is displayed in each of us. It's the cross that frees us to be able to lay down our lives for one another, that frees us to be able to forgive one another, to pray for our enemies, and give away all that we have to the very last loaf or fish that we own. I think that's what's so extraordinary here about coming to this table, because that's exactly what's been given to us. The meal that we share in here, I think, is so profound because, like Paul in this moment, it knows nothing but Christ crucified, which is a scandal and is foolishness to the world. But my hope and my prayer is this morning, I think, again, Jesus invites us to come to him. If what the ancient Israelites, what ancient Judah did, was to know the law through memorizing those words on stone, and we come to know that very same law by knowing Christ, and we know Christ where he promises to be, by journeying with him. So I just want to invite you this morning, as we come to this table, to let it call you to confess all those things that have been less than what God would have intended from you over the course of this week, over the course of your life. Remember the Son of God who died for our sins this morning. But then as you remember that, also be able to rejoice in this new life that Christ offers us here at this table. Because through Jesus and through partaking here, we receive the wisdom of ages and the wisdom of God. The law of God now written in our hearts is spoken to us to everlasting life. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful this morning in this season as we just seek to once again be reminded about who you are and who you have been for us and what that means who we are, just for the truth, for the word of truth that comes to us, that pierces us on the one hand to remind us, Lord, that we need you. We have all gone astray. We have all turned aside from you. We've all seen those alternations, those ups and downs that happen in the kingdom of Israel and Judah where we've wandered away, we've grown cold, and need to be called back. We're always in this process, Lord, of converting, of being made more perfect in love. Allow us, Lord, with humble hearts 
with grateful hearts to come to you this morning to receive the grace of your Son who has given himself for us so that we might have everlasting life in him. Grant us, Lord, a spirit of thanksgiving and a spirit of joy to go into the world telling of what you have done for us. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.